Well, good morning. I'm Phil DeBoof. I lead the pastoral care team here at church, and it's a privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you today. I want you to imagine, if you would, for a few moments, you're looking out over the western horizon toward the west, and uh, just as the sun is slipping out of view, and in its place you see a huge, massive bank of dark, black, billowing clouds that are punctuated with lightning and thunder rumbling through the air, echoing into your house. And as darkness starts to fall, the wind begins to pick up, and, and, and in the darkness you can see the silhouette of trees that are bending over in the breeze, and pretty soon the, the wind starts to howl, and the buckets that you left out in the garden are, are clanging across the driveway, and, and, and uh, the television is starting to, the screen's starting to give you all these pictures of tornadoes and warnings and things that might be happening, and and then, all of a sudden, in the middle of it, there is complete silence, as if God pushed pause. And it's a silence so still that it's, the hair stands up on the back of your neck. Have you ever experienced that? Now, I have a confession to make. That's, that's, for me, that's when I want to go outside and see what's going on. Because when it gets that quiet, that means something's about to happen. One day about 10 years ago, we had a storm rolling into Lacey in the afternoon that was just like that, and it was getting noisier and noisier, and, and the, the wind was swirling around the house, and the windows were rattling with the thunder, and then all of a sudden, it got deathly quiet. And I went outside to look to see what was going on, and, I, and even though it was deathly still on the ground, I looked up in the sky and I'd look over to the west, and the clouds were moving rapidly to the south. Then I looked south, and the clouds were moving rapidly to the east. And I'm in a diagonal building, so I don't have a clue which direction I'm going, all right? And then I would look to the east, and the clouds were rapidly moving to the north. And I looked north, and the clouds were rapidly moving back to the west again. And it was like the cloud formations were on an axis, and they were just turning and swirling all around. Tornado sirens were going off in town, and uh, the television was blaring, run for cover, run for cover, because something was about to happen in the stillness, in the quietness. I would like to suggest that in our text today, that in a moment of silence, it was almost that dramatic. I would like for us to read together from Matthew, the 26th chapter, and beginning with verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. This moment of silence was actually a fulfillment of Scripture from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, where we read these words, He was oppressed and afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Have you ever experienced God's silence in your life? Have you ever had a time when heaven went completely silent? The prayers that you were praying seemed to go up to the ceiling and then bounce back down again. We're going to talk for a few moments about this moment of silence and see if there's something that we can learn from this time today. When faced with God's silence, we humans tend to fall into four traps that I want to talk about today. Four assumptions, critical assumptions that we make that are false, and I'd like to address them today. The first one is this, don't mistake God's silence for apathy. Don't mistake God's silence for apathy. One of the first things that we think when it feels like heaven is silent, when our prayers are not being answered, one of the first things we think is, does God really care? Does God even care about my situation? We pray the prayer that the disciples did in the boat. Lord, don't you care that we're going to drown? Carest thou not that we perish? How can you lie asleep when each moment is madly threatening a grave in the angry deep? Lord, do you care? There's a story in, in uh, the book, God on Mute. Uh, by the way, I've got to credit this message to my wife today. Uh, I, I was really struggling. How do you preach on silence? <laughs> and, so, and so I was uh, kind of complaining about it and, and around the breakfast table, and she didn't really have too much to say about it. And then on the way to work, she sends a text. Uh, she said, you're reading a book, God on mute, right? She said, God, silence equals God on mute. Read the book. Bam, done. <laughs> Thank you, Deb. But there are some, there, uh, this is a book that our pastoral ter, uh, care team is reading through together. And Carl is also, Carl, what day is you going to have the, the uh, uh, God on mute session here? May 12th, May 12th in the evening. And uh, they're going to, they're going to, uh, study this book, and they're going to start several studies up in the future about it, but the, the subtitle is Engaging the Silence of Unanswered Prayer. And in this book, Pete, Pete Gregg uh, relays the story of C.S. Lewis in his first chronicle of Narnia called The Magician's Nephew. It's about a young man named Diggory whose mother was ill. He had been desperately hoping that the lion Aslan would say yes. He had been horribly afraid that it might say no but he was taken aback when it did neither. Have you ever prayed and wished God would either say yes or no and not just leave you hanging? When God is silent in response to our deepest and most desperate prayers, saying neither yes with a miracle nor no with a clear sign that would at least let us know he had heard us, it is natural to conclude that God doesn't care. But a little while later, Diggory dares to ask Aslan for help again. But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything he had seen in all his life. 
For the tawny face that was bent down near his own and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in lion's eyes. They were such big bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother's health than he was. Pete Gregg goes on to say, when we in our pain and shame, when we dare to lift our gaze to study his countenance, we find his face bent toward ours with big, great tears streaming down. You know, the toughest part about times like this when we are questioned to say, does God care? There's an enemy, there's an adversary who jumps right on that and says, God doesn't care about you. God doesn't care about your situation. Can I give you just a little bit of practical advice about that, what I try to do whenever that happens? I remind that adversary what God's word says. And I remind him that in this moment of silence of Matthew chapter 26, God was up to something. God was doing something. There was a battle that was being waged in this moment of silence. You see, I need to remind him, you need to remind the adversary who sweat great drops of blood for our ransom. Remind him who wore a crown of thorns to give us a crown of life. Remind him who was beaten within an inch of his life for our healing. And remind him who was nailed to a tree to set us free from the curse. Every once in a while, he needs reminded. And we're the only ones that can do that. Don't mistake God's silence for apathy. In that moment of time, in that moment of silence, uh, before the court of the high priest, he was doing battle for you and for me. In that moment, he was not defending himself, but he was taking on our stuff. And in that moment, he did battle and he won. So don't ever say he doesn't care. The second trap we fall into Don't mistake God's silence for weakness. If the enemy can't tempt us and say, oh, your problem is too small, God doesn't care, he'll come back with this and, oh, your problem is too big and he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. But don't mistake his silence for weakness. This past Wednesday, I had kind of an aha moment. We were gathering as a staff to pray for Casey, who was going in for surgery on Friday. And in my preparation for prayer time, I kept getting this image in my mind, and I couldn't get it out. And I thought, what does this have to do with anything? It was the, does anyone remember about 15 years ago what the Vermeer logo looked like? I might have a picture up here to help us out. You remember that one? The Diggin' Dutchman. (laughs) And it's a picture of a guy who's rolling up his sleeves ready to take care of business. And I got to reading some scripture that I wanted to share at our prayer time together for Casey, and it was from Isaiah 50, chapter 52. You've probably heard this verse before, and it reads something like this, 52, verse 10, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. You know what that literal translation of that is? It says, our God's going to roll up his sleeve and take care of business. <laughs> and so when we met together to pray for Casey, I shared with the, 
with the staff, I said, all I'm seeing is this picture of the digging Dutchman. And I don't know if it's because Casey's this big guy and it just made me think of that picture or if it's because God was coming to the rescue. You see, we need to remind the enemy when he tells us how weak our God is, we need to remind him that he holds the whole world in his hands, that he's got everything answers, everything and everyone answers to him, and he always has the last word. But the interesting thing about this is I kept reading from Isaiah chapter 52, 10, where it says he would bear his holy arm. He would roll up his sleeves to take care of business. If you go down about three more verses, you know what you read? Isaiah 53, verse 1, where it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He will grow up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. And so I was in this moment of confusion. I wanted the God with a mighty arm that was coming to the rescue, but he comes as a baby. He comes as a suffering Messiah. He lays down his life. He's totally silent. He's silent when I need him most. What is he, weak? No. Our king, in his silence, was doing battle on our behalf. In that moment of silence, he was winning the battle over your sin, over my sin. Our God is not a God of weakness. Our God is one who has rolled up his sleeve, taken our sins, and taken it to the devil head on. This, is, this may sound a little strange, but every once in a while, I get into a shouting match with the devil. And uh, every once in a while, he tells me that I'm weak. And I say, I know, but he's strong. And then he says, is he? Is he strong? And I remind him again of Matthew 26, the day when Jesus faced him face to face, and he punched his lights out. And I just tell him that. I said, devil, you don't have any authority over the kingdom of God. He is the king. You're a pretender. And I think maybe sometimes we get a little bit too quiet in our prayers. Lord, would you please do this? Would you please do that? I think we need to remind the devil just to get lost once in a while. The Bible says to submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I wasn't planning to go here. I'm getting kind of Pentecostal on you again, but... <laughs> But let's not just not take this sitting down, okay? Let's understand that Jesus went to battle for us and he won. Let's, let, let's live in that victory, folks. Our God is not weak. Don't mistake God's silence for weakness. The third trap we fall into often is don't mistake God's silence for injustice. Don't mistake God's silence for injustice. There's a psalm in chapter 73, where the psalmist is really feeling like he's been mistreated. And I would like to just read a few verses and see if any of you can identify with this. Some of you who have lived for the Lord all of your life and yet bad things have happened. Here's what the psalmist said. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. 
From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And then he says this, crying out the inequality and the unfairness of it all. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. The psalmist said, I have done everything I'm supposed to do and still this. But then he goes on in the next verse. He said, it troubled me deeply until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. And in that moment, if you read the rest of the psalm, he becomes a praiser of God who has suffered all of his injustice for him. And I want to tell you, in that moment of silence, you talk about suffering injustice. Every accusation in the book was true and untrue, was thrown against the Messiah. And he suffered it quietly. He took it quietly. He suffered our injustice. Just yesterday, I had the privilege of, of holding a graveside service for a dear friend of our family from years, year, years back. Pat was a saint who loved the Lord with all her heart. And I can remember as a, as a kid growing up, uh, Pat was always had this beautiful smile on her face, always had a song in her heart, always had a twinkle in her eye. She was just one of those that her smile would just warm you all the way to the inside. And I always thought, she's such a neat person. But I didn't know the whole story. And as I... As I began to hear the stories that had gone on in her life as her family shared with me, it broke my heart. Pat had lived through two extremely abusive marriages, both physically and emotionally. Her first daughter had died in infancy. Her first son had taken his life in his 20s. Her second son died in an unfortunate accident involving alcohol and drugs. And her third son was watching the funeral services from a prison cell yesterday. And, and then when I thought about that, I, I thought about the smiles that I would always see. And whenever I would run into Pat at McDonald's in Oskaloosa, she'd say, how are you doing, Phil? And as I was talking to the daughters on, on Friday, one of the daughters says, I, I don't understand it. I said, I don't either. She said, it's always been a mystery to me. She said, the only thing I can figure out is that mom had this secret place that she could throw all of her junk because we never saw any of it. And I got to thinking about that and about Pat. In fact, well, let me back up a little bit. They asked, can we play... At the, at the graveside, can we play a recording of a, my last phone conversation with mom? And I said, yeah, that'd be okay. So yesterday, we listened to this phone conversation between Pat and her daughter. She was in the Knoxville Care Center. This was, she passed away in November. We just had the service yesterday. And she, she said to her daughter, she says, hi, Missy, how you doing? 
I'm sitting out on a patio because they don't really have a very good place for us to be outside, but it's a nice day, but it's kind of gray, she said. There's a lot of trees out there, but none of them have any leaves on it. But honey, they'll come around. They'll come around, honey. I love you, Missy. I'll talk to you later. The next day, she went to her reward. And ironically, yesterday, as we sat in the cemetery at Montezuma and we were holding the graveside service, we were smack dab underneath a great big oak tree <laughs> that had no leaves. And we were listening to this conversation that said, there's no leaves, it's kind of gray, but they'll come around, honey. They'll come around, honey. And we looked up and there were, bud, there were, there were spring buds on this oak tree ready to break out into life and into color. And I shared with the family yesterday, I said, I think I know the secret place where Pat threw all of her stuff. I think it was on a hill far away on an old rugged cross where someone suffered our injustices so that we could let go of them. God says it this way, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And you know how freeing it is when we can let go of our grudges and let go of our vengeance and just let him take it in that moment of silence in Matthew 26? He took it all. You don't have to carry that anymore. Let it go, like Pat did. It's a powerful moment for me as I recognized, don't let God's silence, don't mistake God's silence for injustice. He'll take care of everything in its time. Trust me. We'll get to more of that a little bit in a little bit. The fourth mistake we make, the fourth trap, fourth trap we fall into is this. Don't mistake God's silence for absence. Now, I could quote you scriptures for the next 15 minutes. Well, I could read you scriptures. I don't... <laughs> I could quote scriptures left and right about, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Or where Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or where I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor angels or demons or uh, whatever, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing is able to separate us. Those scriptures, we could quote those all day. But sometimes life can't be fixed with a scripture verse. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes there's deeper issues. There's, there's battles that are, that are just way tougher than one promise on your little promise thing can help. Yesterday, I, or on Wednesday morning, I, I had an opportunity to spend some time with some of my favorite people. I spent a couple hours with little Estella. Many of you know who Estella is. She's a two-year-old who suffers from AHC, a disease that wrecks her with seizures or episodes, I should say, uh, frequently, sometimes lasting up to three days. But Wednesday morning, she was having a good morning, and, and little two-year-old Estella was uh, standing up on her own two feet and holding on to a to a uh, table beside the couch. And, and then they were holding her while we were singing 
if you're happy and you know it, say amen. And she would raise her hand and wave them. And if you're happy and you know it, kick your feet. And she would kick her feet. And it was just a precious time. And then, and then her siblings, they wanted to show me something. Mary, uh, Eliana and Liam and Adriana wanted to show me their farm. So they took me outside and they showed me their four Labradors. I think it's Bo and Moses and Ballerina and Mary. That's their four Labradors. And then they showed me their goats. They have Ruth, Boaz, and Solomon. And I just had a great time out there on their little farm. But I wanted to share an email that their dad had shared with me. And I asked him if I could share it with you this morning. There's no way that I could say it myself. And so listen to these words today. One night I went to bed seething with anger at God. A few hours earlier, I had been rocking Estella in the office while she screamed and cried during a painful episode. I keep a picture of Jesus. You know that famous one that some kid painted? I keep that on the shelf on my desk, and from the rocking chair, I looked at the picture, and in my mind, I couldn't verbalize it, but in my mind, I heaped curses at the picture. I was so totally and utterly broken I was lividly upset. I cussed. I swore. I said things that I would never say out loud. And I asked, why? After lying awake for several hours, I finally was able to sleep. While sleeping, I had a dream. I was in the field behind my house, staring towards the South Skunk River, looking over the river bottom fields and yelling at God. I scream, where are you? You're the creator of the universe, the healer of the sick. You can raise the dead, but you won't heal my daughter. Where are you? Then I turned around. I was facing the tree line back towards my house, and I saw a man walking across the field coming towards me. He was dressed in a red flannel shirt and wearing a pair of Carhartt bib overalls. He had a stocking hat on and had the appearance of a farmer. He came closer, and when I saw his face, I knew who it was. I can't explain how I knew, but I, was, I knew I was looking at Jesus with Carhartts. I was ready to yell at him. I drew in a breath to scream when he drew me close to me, placed both hands on my face, and whispered, Stephen. For a moment, for a single respite of time, after he spoke my name and held my face, I felt completely at peace. It's a feeling that I cannot describe. Church, this is where it gets really tough because this is where I would like to write the end of the story. I'd like to, if I wrote the end of the story, Stephen would go back in and his daughter would be whole. But it hasn't happened yet. We don't know if it'll happen this side of eternity or not. And that's the silence that we're struggling and grappling with and wrestling with this morning. 
He writes on one more paragraph, and then I shot awake. My reality hit me, and I wanted desperately to go back to my dream, to that field, to see and hear his voice and feel that sense of peace. I cling to that memory because in the reality of our daily struggle with Estella, it's all I have, but for now, it's all I need. Don't mistake God's silence for absence. He is there. It is so hard to understand how he can be present and still not give us what we're asking for all the time. I wish I could explain that. I really wish I could. But in the meantime, his voice, his voice is enough. And then there's one more thing that I want to add to this, and this is kind of a final thought for, for today. If I could have the next slide. God's silence is potent. It's, he's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. God's silence is strategic. He knows what he's doing. And third, God's silence is temporary. And for that, I want to go back to our text, only I'm going to take you to the Mark account because I love the way Mark records it. In Mark chapter 14, the silence was temporary. In verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. I want to stop right there. You know who he was talking to? He was talking to the high priest, Caiaphas, the guy that knew more scripture probably than anybody in the room other than himself. And when Jesus said, I am, you know what that triggered in Caiaphas's mind? He knew who the I am was. They'd been schooled on this in the Torah ever since the beginning. When God said, I am, that was it. He wasn't I was or I will be. He was I am, the eternally self-existent Yahweh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And when he dared, when Jesus dared to issue those words, that's what ticked Caiaphas off. It says he tore his clothes and said, what more do we need to hear? We have heard blasphemy here today. You see, Jesus broke the silence with the I am. Silence might be temporary, but the I am is eternal. Don't ever forget that, folks. The I am is eternal one. We could, we could list for a long time today and talk a long time about the I am's of the New Testament in the book of John. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. I am. I want you to know today that the I am was here before us, <laughs> he is here with us, and he'll have the last word on the last day. And that's what I want to end with when Jesus was talking to Caiaphas. I love the way he looked at him and he said, are you the son of God? And he said, 
I am. Oh, and by the way, Caiaphas, high priest, you're going to see me at the right hand of the Father coming on the clouds of heaven. <laughs> Hallelujah. This isn't the end of the story. His silence is temporary. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, there's this uh, startling thing that happens. You know what heaven is like, right? There's constant rejoicing. There's constant worship. It says 24-7, the angels never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Whenever anyone comes to repentance, it says heaven erupts with celebration. So heaven's not a quiet place. If you thought you were going to go to heaven and sleep, I'm sorry. <laughs> It's, it's uh, robust with praise and worship and celebration. But in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, something happens. It says, when the angels picked up the seventh trumpets and got ready to sound, it says there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Can you imagine the eerie feeling that it must be in heaven for that half hour? When through eternity, there's been nothing but praise and worship, and all of a sudden, it is silent because something is about to happen. And if you read the next chapter 8 and chapter 9, you know what that something is. The seventh angel blows his trumpet, and when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, it says that the mystery of God is complete and time shall be no more. There'll be no more delay because the King of kings and the Lord of lords has taken his rightful place as the ruler of all, and we will reign forever and ever. I'd like to ask the praise team, if you would, to come... Uh, prepare to lead us in another, another song of worship. And what I'd like to ask you to do today is just to soak in the story of this song, of his great love for us. And at the end of the song, we're just going to sit in a moment of silence. And we're going to recognize the fact that his silence does not mean apathy. It does not mean weakness. It does not mean injustice. It does not mean absence. And it is only temporary. So would you sit back and if, you, if the Holy Spirit has talked to you about your spiritual condition, you may be here today and have never said yes to the Lord. This would be an awesome opportunity to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if that's you today during this song that talks about that it's all for love, we should accept his gift of love. Or maybe there's something else that you're dealing with that uh, one of these I am scriptures has come to life for you. I pray that you will hear God's voice as we listen, as we sing, and as we sit in a moment of silence this morning.